This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. Just yesterday, I was here. I was at a press conference with all these families who, who you know, criticized us in the media for, you know, take, taking those statements from police and, and, and using them uncritically. So um, I think that there's, there's room to say, hey, yeah, the police statement might have all this detail, but what we don't need, maybe we don't need to know more than we can put in more than we can confidently say we know right now. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer podcast, brought to you by Libro FM. Today, we have a conversation which possibly might be one of my favorite conversations we've had in the entire run of the show. We have Smoking Jacket Club member Melissa Santos on. For those who are unaware, Melissa Santos is a reporter for Crosscuts who does investigative kind of long-form journalism about issues in Washington state politics. Uh, in the past, she has been a legislative correspondent for the News Tribune, and she still dabbles in the legislature as well. And so she wrote an article on April the 8th uh, about 200 law enforcement officers who basically have credibility issues that are so serious that if prosecutors are using evidence from them or if they're testifying, they have to report it to the defense team. And so that report, when I saw it, blew my mind. And so I wanted to have her on the show. When I reached out to her, she said, let's push it back a little bit and let's talk about the legislative session as well. And so this is kind of a two-for-one conversation. You're going to hear Melissa Santos in rare form, honestly. Like she was nonstop beginning to end talking about uh, what happened in the 2021 Washington legislative session and then also the issues of uh, trust and uh, some cases lying, some cases lack of integrity, just credibility issues among uh, over 200 law enforcement officers in Washington state that have been documented that she reported on. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Libro FM, and I don't normally do this, but I just want to talk about a book I'm listening to and invite you to join me. Uh, I'm listening to a book called The Fourth Turning. And so The Fourth Turning is a book that basically talks about uh, American history in a cyclical way. So like many Americans, because capitalism, a lot of things, think about time as being a linear thing. Like that's the idea of progress. We're progressing through time linearly. Uh, this book posits a way of looking at time as cyclical and basically looks at 80-year cycles in American history. And within those 80-year cycles, there are four turns. And so cycle one starts at the founding of the United States and ends about eight years later at the Civil War. Cycle two starts at the Civil War and ends eight years later about the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, if you can do math, you know that the next cycle starts with the Great Depression and World War II and basically ends in our lifetime. And so this is an amazing book, honestly, talking about like just American history and Americans failing to kind of grasp the generational nature of problems. And then also looking at how each generation's like posture is a response to the prior generation's actions and like how they left the world. And so this is not going to be a Nerd Farm Reads Book Club selection necessarily, but I would love if you're reading this book or have read it, like send me your thoughts, please. Uh, I would love to have some of you read this along with me. If you want to shoot me an email, you can reach me at nerdfarmpod at gmail.com. All right. So 
Uh, that is what we have on tap today, a conversation about Melissa, with Melissa about the Washington State Legislature and police with credibility issues. Uh, also, if you're reading the fourth turning or have read it, I'd love your thoughts. Let's get to the show. I think that teaching law enforcement and journalism are like really foundational careers in like having a functioning society and that when they're done poorly, they create really bad outcomes that are dilatories for society. And like there's so many people who quote police statements with no fact checking and just give credulity to police statements. There's so many people who have left the profession and like are now and not shading PR people. Cause like you got to eat, but like so many of the journalists I, who I followed back in 2015 are now mm-hmm. like PR people on the beats they used to cover. And just the fact that like, you're just doing this investigative reporter stuff and like covering it and killing it and being a new mom, like just all respect due, honestly. Oh, thank, well, thank you for that. I mean, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough industry. So I, I never begrudge anyone who gets out of it because like that I'm in a place where I make a decent living and I have people who will give me a little space to write and that makes a huge difference and not everyone has that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, covering the end of the session just now, you know, it is just so different. We're so outnumbered, you know, there's like six of us. Well, okay. There's, there's actually maybe eight now people who are kind of down there doing the ins and outs. And I'm not even actually one of them anymore, really. I'm kind of down there intermittently at, in Olympia. But it's just, you know, there's just a hundred people emailing us about one bill, you know, and there's only so few of us that it can, it just, it just, just it just seemed like the balance has shifted a little bit. Um, and some of those people emailing have really legitimate points about some aspect of coverage that should be addressed. Other people are just trying to kind of spin you, but all of it's just hard to sift through when there's so few of you and so many other people there, you know, anyway. So let me, let me just ask you. So it, it was my intention for us to talk in the first half about uh, your, your piece in April and in the back half about the legislature, but yeah. you already talk about the legislature. Let's, let's go there first. Sure. Yeah. What's the story from the 2021 session? You know, there actually are a few things that were really big that they just they just did really in the last week. I I do think that what they did on police accountability was somewhat significant. Right. And I and I, um, you know, there's some disappointment that some bills didn't get through. But, you know, yesterday I was just at this press conference with, you know, family members of people who had been shot and killed by police. And, you know, these four out of, out of the five bills they wanted the legislature to pass got passed. Right. And this includes the family of Leonard Thomas, who's who was shot on his porch while while in front of his kid in Fife, you know, and had this huge judgment um, because uh, there, there was um, that was deemed by a, a jury to have some issues. Um, well, actually, oh, shoot, I should back up on that. I think they settled it somehow anyway. There was a big there was a big payout in that case. It actually uh, I, I, I should probably correct that because I think it was actually um, a settlement anyway. But these families were there. Right. And um, uh, and they were saying this is big. Like this actually is big. What we accomplished. We had you know, we were making it so people can't just quit a police job and not, you know, in lieu of getting investigated for misconduct and move somewhere else um, with this new decertification bill that was just passed. I mean, it, it kind of a lot depends on how it's implemented, right? But in theory, this is a big deal to say we're making it so we can just yank your license as a police officer if you are lying, if you uh, use excessive force. These are 
sort of strengthened as far as being grounds to just say, you can't work as a cop, like period, not just here, but over here as well. And not letting people just evade investigation by moving between departments in the same way. That was something, um, particularly Leonard Thomas's family said, this is really huge. And uh, all of those families did. And, you know, hearing them talk about it, it does make me feel like, okay, if they, if they feel like this, these were big accomplishments that might've helped their relatives, then that's something to be said. I mean, that's something that the legislature just did. So police accountability, that was really a big, big, big theme of this last session, this session. Uh, climate change, I'm shocked, totally shocked they passed cap and trade. Like I am completely, they did a cap and trade bill. They just did it like, um, you know, over the weekend. And and that's, um, I didn't think that was going to get through. I did not think there was going to get through. And there was a lot of disagreement about whether it was the right approach, right? I mean, sort of legitimate disagreements about whether this policy to curb uh, greenhouse gas emissions was the right one. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, they passed this thing to cap cap uh, emissions across the state and sort of ratchet down limits on greenhouse gas emissions for big polluters. Um, and they also passed a clean fuel standard um, that will require cleaner gasoline. There's a little bit of wonky negotiation that happened as far as they what they they need you they need to pass a highway package for all of it to take effect. Um, so that is a bit of a loophole. We'll have to see how that ends up working out. But these are big bills. So I think climate change and police accountability were pretty big this session. And there are a bunch of other things too, but those are two that really come to mind as things I wasn't sure they'd make as much progress on as they did. Can can we just, just zoom in on the cap and trade bill for a second? Mm-hmm. So like, I'll be honest, like I'm a more keen legislative walk, watcher than the average Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I didn't hear very much about that at, at all. Was It's complicated. It's complicated. And that's probably why. I mean, to be honest, I was busy writing about police accountability and I didn't write as, so much about it. So, I mean, yeah. that, not that you only read me. I know you read widely, but I think that it's a complex <laughs> bill that, you know, didn't get um, uh, maybe as much coverage because most of us didn't really think it was going to happen. And there was a lot of um, disagreement about whether we should do a carbon tax and, you know, invest th- that money from that tax into sort of green energy programs and all this stuff, um, or to do this cap and trade. And so, um, you know, uh, it, it is supposedly, you know, the sponsor says the sponsors, Ruben Carvile, Kyle, sorry. Oh my God. It's too early, man. This is, it's not even that early. It's like nine twelve AM, but apparently, okay. Ruben Carlisle, whose name I don't think I've ever mispronounced until now, um, from Seattle is a sponsor. And it also was really pushed hard by the governor and, you know, he was really, uh, involved in crafting that bill. So, um, you know, the, the, the complaint about this from some, some folks is that, you know, it, it does allow people to, to do some, um, you know, not, not direct pollution reduction, right? So, so it's at their actual plants. I mean, it, it has a pretty high standard for saying you need to reduce your emissions, you person who's, or company that's, you know, um, pumping carbon and other greenhouse gases into the air. But there's like 8% or so at the end where it's like, eh, you don't have to actually do that at your plant, that last 8%, as far as reducing Yeah, you can emissions. do offsets or whatever instead. Yeah, exactly. And so there's some complaint. Will that mean that communities of color in certain areas that have, you know, been disproportionately affected by pollution will still be disproportionately affected by pollution? Sort of that's the concern. But the um, sponsors do say that they've changed a lot of stuff from what, you know, happened in California, where there was some criticism of how that worked out um, and that they've improved upon it. So I guess we'll just have to see if that um, is the case. There certainly are some more stringent... Um, uh, provisions in there. And there are some environmental justice um, pieces baked in that weren't in some of the bills that have been criticized elsewhere. So, 
So it's funny because so the two biggest pieces or the two biggest wins that you're talked about are police accountability and cap and trade. I'm fairly sure I know the answer to this, but did mm-hmm. either bill get any Republican votes? Oh, God, man. Why are you? Well, you're quizzing me. You're quizzing me over here. So this is the great <laughs> thing about doing Internet. Um, I do. Cap and trade is absolutely not. I think police accountability. So there are there were so many police accountability bills. There was mm-hmm. some um, there was some Republican support for some. Um, uh, cap and trade. I just um, I do not think that there was any Republican votes. And there was uh, actually some Democrats who said we're not voting for this either. Um, a mixture on that case of, you know, we don't, we're worried about how it will affect fuel prices and industry. And also this isn't progressive enough. There was kind of a mixture of some Democratic, sure. a couple of Democrats who didn't support it for that reason too. But on police accountability, I mean, it depends on the bill, right? So there's this bill that they passed that's about a duty to intervene, um, which did get, you know, Republican votes. It was pretty, uh, like the House was like 71 votes, which is, you know, at least 14, 14 Republicans had to have voted for it then, you know, out of the, oh, man, this is so many numbers, man, 998 House members. Yeah, so, 98. Thank you. I sometimes get a little, anyway, I, I sometimes get, because there's 98 House members, and sometimes I think about 147 lawmakers total in both chambers, mm-hmm. and I get all, like, crossed and mixed up. But, um, yeah, so so some of those bills, arguably the ones that don't um, do quite as much, you know, in this case, setting a new standard that some people worry will just be ignored, right? <laughs> sort of, you know, that kind of stuff we did get some Republican support. The decertification bill I was talking about earlier, I think, it, yeah, it, it um, got, it didn't get 57 votes, which is the Democratic um, numbers there. Um, however, yeah, it looks like most Republicans voted against that. I, I wish that our legislature had like a better way of just saying, these, which ones are Republicans or Democrats when you're looking at the vote count? Because I actually have to read each one and go, is that a Republican or a Democrat? Is that a Republican or a Democrat? Um, but yeah, it looks like it let, there might have been one who crossed over somewhere, but I'm not seeing them right now. And we even got a few uh, Democrats who um, thought the decertification bill maybe, I think, infringed upon collective bargaining rights, perhaps for police unions too much. That sort of thing was a big debate with that bill. So, yeah. Um yeah, some of them were party more party line. Other ones got some. This is a really long way of saying, meh, like kind of mixed on <laughs> the police accountability as far as the bipartisanship. Something I'm curious about is that like I have had a concern since I'd say about 2014 that as the Republicans moved into the minority and as Democrats took away swing seats, that the remaining Republicans would be more intransigent, more Trumpy and more like ridiculous, if that makes sense. So what was, I I, I noted that there was not a scandal that bubbled up with like domestic terror or sedition or something Mm -hmm. this year. So what was this year like for the Republicans being in the minority? Oh, well, um, well, I will say, yeah, as far as like with the actual lawmakers themselves, no sedition. Um, there was that on January 6th when the, when the riot happened yeah. at the U.S. Capitol, there was the incursion. I mean, it was before session started. It was a few days before session started. There were these armed protesters who uh, over who breached the governor's mansion in Olympia, which kind of set the stage for this whole session. Right. Because, you know, this this. Uh, you know, of this mob um, that that over that that, you know, overran the U.S. Capitol. And then these folks who are maybe slightly different in nature. I wasn't at this actual event, but it was there were definitely people with guns who, you know, entered the grounds of the governor's mansion when they were not supposed to in Olympia. So 
that means we had fences up the whole the whole uh, year, basically. You know, think security's yeah. been really tight, and that's been a com- sort of a complaint for Republicans. So a lot of the time, they've kind of um, you know had concerns about access this year because the public was mostly barred from the legislative building, and that's been a recurring theme that's come up. Um, at the same time, though, people had more access than ever in some ways because everyone's able to testify remotely on bills, and they don't have to drive from Spokane to come on over. Um, Okay, so that doesn't quite answer your question. Uh, as far as being in the minority, um, they did not. Oh God, I forgot about the capital gains tax. Wow. Okay. So I, was, no, so I was. I'm waiting Man. for that one. I was. I was going to be like, we're ten minutes into this, and we've mentioned Man. capital gains yet. So this is what I mean when I say that they did a bunch of stuff here. You know, whether good or bad, Republicans are not happy with this because you know um, this tax they think is illegal. This I should back up. Every time I talk to you, Nate, it's like more like I'm talking like I'm talking to not a journalistic person. That this is not. In the sense of my, my sentences don't make any sense is what I'm saying. Like I'm not, I don't, for some reason we like go back into some sort of land of talking. This is why you all have sense. editors. Like you have editors yeah, for this reason, right? Well, I know, but like I can talk like a normal person. Okay. 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 Yes. Capital gains tax is actually a huge thing that I think a lot of people would say is sort of the biggest thing that the legislature did this year. Republicans hate it. Like universally, there were no Republicans but votes for a capital gains tax. And this, um, this tax is really, um, I'm not going to, I'm personally, I'm not going to pay it. So um, Same. that doesn't mean that people won't pay it. You know, the Republican argument is people that smell, se- smell, sell small businesses, you know, as sort of the end of their livelihood where they've been working on this business forever, will end up get paying this tax as it is going to hurt people who aren't super, super wealthy. Democrats say it's only going to hit the super wealthy because, you know, you have to sell, you know, more than $250,000 worth of some asset like stocks and bonds um, to, um, you know, actually get the tax applied to you. So, yeah, basically the idea from Democrats is, hey, we are actually making the wealthy pay more instead of just having, you know, a, a state budget and that relies on sales taxes and property taxes for the most part, which they say hits, you know, middle, low income people. Uh, much, much, much harder. And, you know, objectively, sales taxes, yeah, you're going to pay a higher percentage of your income in taxes if you're a low-income person and your state has really high sales taxes. So anyway, so that's a big thing they did. Um, they coupled that with actually passing a, a tax exemption. God, man, maybe we should have talked about the ledge at the end. Man, they did a lot of stuff, man. They did do a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of people hate what they did. Um, Democrats, I think, are pretty excited about some of these things. So <sighs> day after session, man. It's just a, it's just a rough, rough, rough brain time. Um, they passed a working families tax exemption that technically has been on the books for more than a decade, you know, actually since 2008, but they never paid for. So they kind of had this like, hey, we have this tax program that, you know, gives money back to low-income people who pay a lot in sales taxes. Oh, except we never actually provided any money to make it happen. Except this year they did. They did this year. So that actually will benefit, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to some extent. You know, um, the max rebate on that is $1,200. So it's not um, like people are getting thousands and thousands back. But, you know, a few hundred dollars for people who are low income, who, you know, um, they don't have capital gains they're selling, for instance. And they're not going to be affected by the other tax. But they get this benefit back. And that's one thing they did. Tax reform. I'm fascinated because for the life of this podcast, one of the talking points that basically every third guest talks about is how Washington state has the most regressive tax structure in the United States. And then the talking point from Republicans has always been that the 
taxing system in Washington state is unfair and punishes working people. And so the capital gains tax is a real way to make Washington state taxes much less regressive. But then like Republicans don't support the capital gains tax. And like, I'm not naive. I didn't expect them to. But mm-hmm. were they proposing any alternatives in order to like deal with the regression of the tax code? Or are so they just I- like, it's aggressive, regressive, bad? Um, well, you know, one thing I will say is Republicans were supporting that working families tax exemption this year. Um, they released budgets that paid for it um, within without doing the capital gains tax. They were saying, hey, that was sort of their way of saying we want to make stuff less regressive, too. Here's a way we can do that. We don't think we need to raise taxes to make it happen, which, you know, I mean, objectively looking at the budget, um, they got a lot more money um, as revenues rebounded state. Um, the state got a ton of money from the federal stimulus package. Technically, they did not need a capital gains tax just to pay for you know, base level programs. They did not need it to maintain existing services. Very different than what happened in the last recession when it was literally like, we have to cut a bunch of programs right now if we don't raise taxes. So it was so it really was it's sort of we should fix our tax code right now. It was a lot of it. Um, the capital gains tax also is, you know, the, the argument from Democrats is we need to make things better, not just kind of like keep going along the way we've been going. Child care is a mess, you know. Um, people are struggling. People are not doing well coming out of the pandemic, even if our state budget is doing OK. So we need to actually make things better and not just say we have enough money, leave things alone. So um, that's kind of what ended up happening. This capital gains tax money is going to go toward child care and education, primarily the state's child care system and, um, you know, trying to make things more affordable, actually paying per- you know, providers enough to hopefully raise wages for people um, who are working in childcare and adding slots for people to actually get their kids in childcare, especially for the subsidized programs for lower income people. So yeah, that's a big thing too. Childcare, capital gains tax. It's so interesting that capital gains tax has finally passed because like, honestly, in the history of this show, the two guests who've been on the show the most are like you and Lori Jenkins and Lori Jenkins have been shepherding capital gains tax through like her entire time. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe. And no, so no, uh, it was like we, we, 2012. She introduced it her first. It was, I guess, her first year was 2011, technically, yeah. I think. But yeah, her first term, she introduced this tax. Now she's Speaker of the House and she presided over the passage of the bill. So I kind of wanted to get in her head a little like, how you feeling, Lori? How's it, how you doing? You know, right? Because I'm sure that was a big moment for her um, because it has been a decade long process uh, for her and for others who wanted to see the policy passed. Let's rewind in the conversation a few minutes. We were talking about, (laughs) we were talking about like the, when the insurgents, whatever protest no they're not protesters when the 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 washington state coup coalition went into the governor's mansion Mm -hmm. i I was struck by a couple of things that happened that day Mm -hmm. one there was an image of a state trooper like giving them like the thumbs up which is really interesting to me for obvious reasons going back to what we're talking about the Mm -hmm. second segment and then the other thing is that like so if i have this right some of the most radical supporters of the republican party barge into the governor's mansion with guns. And then as a response to that, a fence was put up around the Capitol. And then the politicians who these domestic terrorists support uh, objected to the fence as being a violation of liberty, but they did not object to the occursion in the first place. Like, how, how does somebody say that with a straight face? That like, I don't have a problem with the incursion, but like, hey, these fences are bad. Well, I, 
this one's a little tough because I, I personally do feel that the Olympia protesters, I, and hard to say I wasn't there. There were some people who are way out of line, threatening, yeah. you know, and um, and <laughs> tear gassing reporters and absolutely, completely, completely inappropriate. And, and I will say the Republicans, though, some of them, I think they did speak out against that incursion. I think J.T. Wilcox, the House Minority Leader, certainly did. And said, and I don't think I heard explicit yeah yeah rah rah kind of thing like that from our state house republicans and 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 such um but you know i do think that the memory of that incursion seemed to fade pretty quickly in the sense of you know um uh uh the the push for removing the fences um you know i i i think that I was actually sort of expecting a little more activity um, prior to the um, adjournment, you know, right at the end there. And I was at the Capitol and it, it didn't happen, but, you know, it could have, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I, yeah, I mean, it seems like there, there was a real, real incursion and, you know, real things happening with people getting out of hand in Olympia. And, and I, I can't speak to all of their ideology. There was um, some really concerning stuff that was being said on the front lawn of the governor's mansion. When I saw the videos, there was one, at least one person was um, saying some sort of um, anti-Semitic stuff. And so there was, you know, that was not all just people running around with guns, exercising second amendment rights without any animosity in their hearts. Right. That was not that what that was. <laughs> so, I don't, I, I don't know. Like there's Republicans I respect in Olympia that, you know, spoke out against it. Um, I don't I don't know what I think the right path is on the security front. You know, I think public access is really important, um, but I don't um, I think that we can't ignore what happened at the U.S. Capitol as well that day. Uh, and 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 that uh, it didn't seem like the, the Capitol in Olympia was prepared for that sort of thing. So we talked about how Lori was the advocate for the capital gains tax from day one. And so let's take Lori like off the table. Mm -hmm. This this seems like a cheap question, but like I'm really curious who either distinguished themselves or made a name for themselves or like won the session. Like who, 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 who did a really good job representing their constituents? So I, I, in the sense of winners and losers, as far as like moral judgment, I am a neutral party on this. As far as getting sure. policy wins and getting their bills through, I, I go back. I go back to the um, the people who really worked on police accountability bills. There were those families that were pushing it, but um, there were these representatives who just really worked with those families and and got some of that stuff through. And those are Representative Deborah Entman, Representative Jesse Johnson, um, uh, Representative Entman's from from Kent. And Jesse Johnson's from Federal Way, and they must have been. I, everyone's in meetings during the legislature, like. But these folks, I think, really. I don't know if those bills would have gotten over the line the same way, or all of them, or you know that many of them would have gotten over the line without those folks. Um, oh, those particularly Representative Entman and um, yeah, Jesse Johnson. Um, Noelle Frame worked really hard on the capital gains talks. She's the House Finance Chair, and she's uh, worked with. Uh, Lori Jenkins and and others to get that passed. You know, the governor is probably feeling pretty happy right now. Governor Inslee, he he's wanted a capital gains tax for several of his budgets. He's proposed it over and over, and it uh, has never passed. In fact, it never even passed the state senate. And then this year, it passed both chambers. It's like, whoa, okay, um, all right. So, um, you know, 
I would think a lot of the Democrats are feeling pretty happy. Um, Joe Fitzgibbon um, is the House Environment Chair, um, and he uh, has been working on that clean fuel standard, that low carbon fuel standard for many years. So as the governor. So they're probably feeling pretty happy to have gotten both cap and trade and the clean fuel standard through. I kind of thought it would be one or the other. Right. You know, I just mm -hmm. didn't think both would be going through. And so that um, those guys are pretty happy on the environmental front. And yeah, I mean, I, I just keep coming back to those police accountability bills. Certainly, there are plenty of people who worked on them. Jamie Peterson, that was the um, God. I could just list a bunch of lawmakers. It's a little boring, probably for readers, but or <laughs> listeners. But he's um, he's the chair of the uh, Senate Law and Justice Committee, and he was the sponsor of the decertification bill. And he's one of those guys who. Um, <laughs> I think he knows I think this of him, so I don't I don't mind. He's a sometimes he feels a little bit pompous when he's talking, right? Because he's like, I only sponsor bills that are that I that I that I can get through. I sponsor very few bills and I make sure they get through, kind of thing. But like he did get that decertification bill through with the help of all those families and everything. And that's a pretty big bill. So um that's a pretty big uh, policy win for him to have gotten that done because Police, police did not like that bill. You know, they, there's some of these bills they actually jumped on, uh, like the Fraternal Order Police was like, okay, we can support this with a few changes. Decertification, they were like, nah, nah we're not going to support that. So all those police groups, you know, can be, I think they can, they can sometimes um, prevent movement on some of these bills. And this year, it just, they pushed it through regardless, that decertification one. So I'm wondering for the for the listeners out there who are very like plugged into things. What is something that uh, was either left undone or, or or died in one chamber or the other? So um, the the big thing. So I, I you remember I said that for the the families of police shooting uh, victims that that one of their bills didn't get done. Four out of five, um, and the one that didn't get done was qualified immunity reform, mm -hmm. making it so people can have a state cause of action to sue police officers when they, you know, cross a line when they when they violate someone's constitutional rights. Because it is pretty hard right now under federal um, case law to like to sue someone um, if they think you know it gets real complicated. But essentially, the way that's ended up playing out is that. It's like they have to have had some sort of ruling in the past that was basically almost the same as this exact situation in order for a police officer to be held liable civilly, you know, for violating someone's constitutional rights. So, yeah, that would have made it so it was easier for to sue someone, say, who violates someone's constitutional rights as a police officer. That did not pass. Um, that's sort of something they're going to regroup on and come back next year, because I think I think that they think that that aspect of accountability is pretty important to change the culture of policing so that it isn't just um, it isn't what these families certainly think is police officers generally acting with impunity or that culture in which that's allowed. Um, so that's a big one. Um, wow. Actually, this is actually my first time to really like pause and reflect on what happened during session. Um, so there was another big thing that happened, but it didn't go as far as some people wanted. And that was um, drug possession. Um, there was a ruling that just kind of came, you know, surprised a lot of people in February that said our felony law, you know, criminalizing drug possession as a felony. Yeah, that's unconstitutional. That's done. It's not right. You know, they basically are punishing people who may not even know they're carrying drugs and that you struck it down. The Supreme Court struck it down in our state. And so lawmakers responded to that. And um, they didn't leave it completely uh, as it was by the court ruling, which would be like no criminal penalties for drug possession whatsoever. They made it a misdemeanor. They are, they, they're going to make it a misdemeanor to possess drugs. Um, 
for the next couple of years and trying to come up with some other solution. Some people were like, why are you recriminalizing it at all? Why not just leave it or just invest in treatment and not have any criminal penalties? And that was a huge debate. So I think they're going to revisit that. In fact, the bill says they're going to revisit it, basically, um, and say, what is this the right approach for um, you know, drug treatment and, 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 and treating drug possession in our criminal justice system. Because of course, you know, people of color have been disproportionately prosecuted and jailed for drug offenses. So it was very much a hot button issue this session in particular when it came to criminal justice reform. Um, they did put about $90 million toward um, treatment programs and sort of saying divert people to treatment, at least for their first two misdemeanor offenses. So there was Movement there, but not as far as much as much as some people would like to go as far as just completely decriminalizing um, drug possession. All right. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about our original plan topic. This is an all vibes episode. We're just going with the flow right now. Uh, uh, and we'll talk about your report from April about the Brady List and police in Washington state. So we'll be back. This episode of the Nerd Farmer Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro FM is a seller of audiobooks and is my choice, uh, my bookseller of choice. What I love about Libro is, is if you buy a book from Libro, uh, you can share a portion of the proceeds with, the, with your local bookstore. And so, for example, when I buy a book, it benefits King's Books in Tacoma. Um, I want to share a few of the topics and a few of the titles I listened to recently, and maybe you might want to check them out. Uh, the first one is a book called Sky Hunter by Marie Lu. Marie Lu is a young adult sci-fi writer. I first fell in love with her writing when she wrote the Young Elites trilogy. Uh, the bumper sticker on the Young Elites is, is imagine the X-Men being created during the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, sounds dope. Uh, the next one I want to recommend is called 400 Souls. It's a collection of essays that is edited by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, essentially, each one of these essays in the book is telling the story of Black America one year at a time. And so it starts with 1619 and then walks through the history of Black America uh, and some of the some of the, the, the things that Black Americans have had to overcome. It's frankly a sobering book and a dark book. Uh, there are a couple times where like I was like, I'm, I can't mess with this right now. I had to, walk, had to walk away from it. But like that's also the history of Black America. Uh, the last book I want to recommend today is called Chlorine Sky. It's written by a writer named Mahogany L. Brown. And essentially it is a book written in verse that tells the story of a young woman who basically is in love with hip hop and basketball. If you've ever read the book uh, by Sandra Cisneros, uh, The House on Mango Street, imagine The House on Mango Street updated for today and centered on hip hop culture. So if any of those sound great to you, go to LibroFM.com. If you sign up for an account and use promo code Tacoma, you will get one free book, your first book free, and then your ongoing membership will be $14.99 a month. Again, Libro FM using promo code Tacoma. All right, back to the show. And we are back. Listener, thank you for downloading the show today. This conversation is an in-depth conversation about our state government. This has been one of my hobby horses since day one of the show, that folks need to pay less attention to Washington, D.C. and what any given president is doing and more about state government. And so this is a conversation to me that is like foundational to the show and very important. If you enjoy these kind of conversations and you enjoy hearing people like Melissa, reporters like Will James, uh, people in the community, uh, I'm going to ask you to consider joining Channel 253 as a member. If you join Channel 253, uh, your membership is $4 a month or $40 a year, and your donations help us to operate the network. 
In addition, you get access to our member Slack. And the member Slack has a channel called Tacoma News, where a lot of conversations are happening right now about uh, Sheriff Troyer. There's another channel uh, where Howie Carnegie folks are helping folks get vaccinated and make vaccine appointments. And so there's lots of conversations happening. I think one of my favorite parts about membership is, is that if you're a member, you get access to what I think is the best podcast on the network, which is Doug's Off the Record Show, where he interviews the show hosts and has conversations. A couple of episodes are going to be coming out in the near future where like Evelyn and I give tips for traveling to Vegas because Doug has a trip coming up. And so if you like the, the energy of the show and you like these conversations, support us as a member. Speaking of support, uh, Melissa writes for CrossCut, and CrossCut is a local news outlet that is basically, like, in my view, it's the equivalent of the Texas Tribune uh, down in Texas. And, like, what is really important about it is, is that, like, you're not going to get breaking news, but what you're going to get is that day-two analysis of the stories, and you're going to get, like, in-depth investigative reporting. And so, for the record, I support CrossCut. I have donated to CrossCut, and you should do the same. Uh, Melissa's reporting is indispensable, and also Mo, Mo is still there, I hope. Mo is still there, yes. Mo is still there as engagement editor. Yes, 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 yes. She's still there. Great, great. So we have multiple show guests who are working at CrossCut. Uh, they deserve support. All right. Melissa, let's get back to it. Yeah. So the actual impetus for this conversation is you did some just like old school gumshoe, like public public records request journalism. And Mm -hmm. like, I want to talk about this. So I remember the day that it was published because I was out with some friends having uh, coffee and my wife was like, why do you keep looking at your phone? And I'm like, because Melissa Santos went off. (laughs) Uh, The headline is nearly 200 cops with credibility issues still working in Washington state. How did the story even come on your radar in the first place? Um, I was on maternity leave and I was reading stories and feeling like I should be doing something more um, to, we mean, George Floyd uh, protests were happening. Um, everyone was, ex- Brianna Taylor had gotten shot. I just felt like, I felt like I was, I felt useless is basically where the story came from. Um, I was sitting at home. Uh, I was busy. I mean, I had a, I had, a had an infant, but um, anyway, I, I just was thinking about what's a way I can report on this in a way that might be meaningful that I haven't seen reported on. And so, you know, I was reading a lot of stories, trying to keep up with stuff. And at the time, there had just been this issue in Snohomish County where two officers, I think it was two two deputies, had um, been, they had been placed, you know, they had been fired and rehired uh, by the sheriff, but they were going to remain on this list of cops with issues, right? Or cops where prosecutors had to bring forth, you know, their past conduct. Um, so defense attorneys could potentially say, hey, hey, is this guy really, you know, reliable when they were used as witnesses? And it turns out, you know, I, I it, it in my memory because I, I know, know of these lists that prosecutors keep track of these um, cops that they have to like legally tell defense attorneys Hey, this person lied this one time. You need to know because we, you know, have due process rights in our U.S. Constitution. <laughs> that sort of thing, right? So I just was thinking, why not go ask everybody who's on their list? It seemed like a pretty straightforward thing. Like, oh, they all have a list. Why don't I just go get it? Um, it took a long time. <laughs> it took a really, really long time. Uh, but it just, especially when you're hearing about so often these families say, you know, what the police are saying that my, 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 my loved one would never do that. My never, my loved one would never say that act like that to a cop. We don't think they were armed at the time. Um, you know, they, they, they essentially the police story isn't always what turns out to be the real story. So a lot of times, you know, 
it is, but and often, often maybe it's not. And the families have been saying this for a long time. And we've seen evidence, for instance, in how we now we know the way that the Minneapolis police reported the death of George Floyd originally was um, highly misleading, I will say, um, you know, kind of acting like he just had a medical incident without, uh, you know, much uh, regard for the nine minutes someone was on his neck, right? Where Derek Chauvin was on his neck. So anyway, it just made me think we need to know about cops that you know have been known to lie in the past because if they're going to lie about one thing what happens when there is a shooting when there's something where they might be accused of wrongdoing uh, will they be truthful in those situations is sort of the underlying question um and anyway that was what got me thinking about the story and why i went to every prosecutor's office and asked for their list of cops that have had these sort of issues that could impeach their credibility and that was how it started. I don't want to get you in trouble with your colleagues in the profession, but I'm really curious. What does it make? How do you respond when you see your fellow journalists uh, quoting statements from the police without verification and quoting mm-hmm. like police statements uncritically, knowing that there's this issue with false statements and misleading mm-hmm. reports from the police and journalism? So it's, it's a hard thing because I don't cover crime as it happens right now, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's easy for me to say, hey, you just should never, you know, just take a, you know, a police statement and use it in your reporting until you have some sort of verification. But it can be very difficult to get that verification. So I, it's something I'm torn about, right? What needs to be extremely clear in all the reporting, and I think I think more and more journalists have been going towards this, making it extremely clear, this is what police are saying this is not a fact that is that is that we have independently confirmed. It's really important to separate those things. And I'm glad to see the profession moving more toward that. Um, because the reality is, I, and I, I have I did work at the, as a crime reporter at the News Tribune for less than a year, you know, when I first started. If it's if it's 9 p.m., you there was a shooting. Usually the first inf- information and, and sometimes only information you have is what the police say happened. So we, we have to but we have to qualify that and i and not just i i it, for me crosscut doesn't really cover breaking crime news so again it's sure. really easy to say just like don't use it at all but like people do want to know hey what was that shooting down the street like what the heck was that am i safe what's happened has the person gotten apprehended um is it is it is it something that is completely different than what i thought it was was it a car backfiring i mean all this stuff is stuff people want to know about their neighborhoods however I do think there was a time in journalism and occasionally it can still happen where it is just presented uncritically. This is what happened when it's just what it really is, is you got a statement from the police. So we need to be cautious about um, about how we use those statements. I think that's really clear. And, um, you know, it, it strikes me. I, I don't know if I have the perfect solution for it exactly, because, you know, hearing from these families and, and, and they're, they're they're right. You know, again, I go back uh, just yesterday. I was here. I was at a press conference with all these families who who, you know, criticized us in the media for, you know, take, taking those statements from police and, and, and using them uncritically. So um, I think that there's there's room to say, hey, yeah, the police statement might have all this detail, but what we don't need. Maybe we don't need to know more than we can put in more than we can confidently say we know right now like if a police the police shot someone we can say the police shot someone and we're still gathering more information maybe that's better than saying uh, 
all everything they say led up to it, right? I, I don't, I don't know because people want it's it's it, 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 there's things are in conflict, right? People sure. do want information, but is that information accurate? So I think that it needs to be completely reconsidered. Sometimes how we use police statements. I do want to put you know on the record. I think that I think police as a whole, as an institution, I think most police officers take integrity very seriously, and they've been with and don't. Um, and I don't think that all police officers have a pattern of lying. I do think that there is a culture in which, which people, uh, you know, that thin blue line can lead to people protecting each other within the profession. And that's, can be, that can mean there are, there is inaccuracies and lies that can happen and, and, and happen more than we want to see for people who are, you know, tasked with essentially people's freedom and liberty uh, and, and upholding it and their safety. So I, this is a really roundabout answer to say, I don't know the answer to this question. I think that I, I never wanted to cover crime um, in a way, partly because I didn't, it didn't connect with me in the sense that I didn't um, always understand the value of that first, you know, that initial, we have to get this out mm-hmm. right now, even if we have limited information. I mean, I struggle with that my whole career, right? However, I don't think that a, a lot of reporters necessarily have a choice in just not writing some of those stories. So I think it, it needs, there needs to be a better, a better practice. I think it's improving. I think that I see more clearly that people are at least attributing, this is a statement from police. And, but I think we might need to be more explicit and say, we have not interviewed witnesses ourselves. We have not, you know, like super explicit. We only have the police side of the story right now. At this point in time, we have not. Uh, talk to the victim's family. We have not done this. We have not done this. And like, it sounds like you're just admitting you did a crappy job, right? But like, that's okay. You know, like in some sense, like it's okay to say we don't have the whole story. And I think that it might build trust better to do that um, and make it, I just think that that might be important to say, to, to, to admit media is, in, that the media is not infallible and that we only know so much and we are working to verify more information and it's going to take time might actually help people understand what we're doing better. You know, it, it, it's been one of my big frustrations with things because like we, we know that police oftentimes lie in particular mm-hmm. about use of force. We know I, that every time a black person is described by a police officer, well, not every time, I don't mean hyperbolic, but like far too often, uh, when black people who have been the victims of police violence are described by police, they're described like bad guys from the 1980s and like the kind of language, like you'll never take me alive, copper. Like I've I've read some of these statements and I'm like, nobody effing talks like that. Like, what are you you doing? Well, I mean, it's, it's, and it's hard too, because we know, like we know from psychological studies, we know from research that people view, I mean, especially white people view people of, of, who are black or of another race as being more threatening than they are. Like I've even had this in my own, my husband happens to be black. And people sometimes are like, well, your husband's a pretty big dude, right? I'm like, he's going to be mad at me. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a very strong man, but he is 5'8 and 160 pounds, right? So I'm just like, I mean, he's, he's, he is, right? But then I realize people see him as being like six feet tall and like, I don't know, 250, 300 pounds or something. It's like, what? And so these are these racial biases that come even, you know, into play. And, and when we talk about the police, officers making a split second decision based on they thought their life was in danger. Well, that's a problem. If you think that you're being approached by a 300 pound man who is, you know, six feet tall 
And in your view of this threat, that may not even be an accurate. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is this is known, right? This is just a known thing. And there's implicit bias training that that even police acknowledge these things when they're doing these trainings. That this is a thing, like it's a real thing that influences those split second decisions that we're always hearing about, which lead to these um, shootings, killings, and all these tragedies. So, yeah, I mean, wow, well, where did we start here? <laughs> where did we? Where did we start? And where did we go? Now I've lost it because I started talking about my husband's BMI, which is he's really going to appreciate. Um, um, he is a he is a very strong uh, man. However, um, you just realize that. There, apparently there are people who think he's like Mr. T size, literally. And you're like, what the anyway. So um No it's 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 and it's frustrating to me because like in these moments after issues of police use of force, there's a moment when like the public consciousness is shaped. And in Tacoma, my frustration has been like Loretta Cool and the TPD always have a statement ready in 20 minutes. Like it doesn't matter what happens, there's a statement ready to go. Our elected officials never have a yeah. statement ready to go. And so whatever the police version of events is, is what carries the day in the reports the next day and then mm -hmm. gets distorted in right-wing media. And then mm -hmm. the reporters at a certain station, a couple certain stations in Seattle, give an even more distorted version of the news. And then it's not until three or four days later we get actually more context. But by then, like the the the, the hen is out of the barn or the fox is out of the barn, the chicken's out of the barn, something's out of the damn barn. The barn is and like so, crazy. Like, There's all these animals flying out. Yeah, exactly. Right? It, it, it's like the incident where the police officer drove through the crowd. And right. so then right-wing media circulated this image of a police vehicle with its window bashed out and was like, look, but like... That wasn't the guy's vehicle, but like that circulated in right wing media. And then and I, I'm not blaming the journalists at media outlets for what happens in right wing media, but like cops lie, fam. And that's that's just yeah. like cops yeah. lie. Like they, right. they lie in particular about when they use force. They will mm -hmm. they will oftentimes or too often give the version of facts that puts them in the best light. And like mm -hmm. that's honestly human nature. Like no kidding. Right. But like I just I just I, I'm frustrated that journalists can't get their heads around that sometimes. I think that, yeah, I think that this is where that culture of um, infallibility in journalism, too, like, I mean, I think we all know that journalists make mistakes and we write correction. I mean, real journalists write corrections on their stories and, like, fix their stories when they're wrong. Not all journalists, I guess not all people who pose as journalists do that. I think that's a distinction, <laughs> distinct, that, that is a factor in, in real journalism. However, the way the people culture works. People who pose as journalists, by the way, I'm, that's, that's, that's smoke. People who pose as journalists, keep going, sorry. I just I mean, Right. I mean, well, I mean, but I will say the culture that uh, here's the other thing. The Internet lives forever. And, and I don't think that journalism is caught up with this fact in every case. Right. Because it used mm -hmm. to be literally. I mean, I think the way we write cop stories, actually, we I haven't written one in a very, very long time. Well, OK, I haven't written a someone shot someone tonight. Here's what we know so far story in a very long time. Uh, but, you know, I think that a lot of our practices are based on a paper that is viewed for a very short period of time and then is in like, you know, lining bird cages the next day. And we know that's not what happens now. Right. It hasn't happened for 20 years, uh, 25, 30, 25 years, certainly. Right. So what that means is that that story that you wrote saying that this is what happened um, and that was what you know at the time. That is what was told you attributed to the police, maybe even appropriately is what's still out there for people to find. And it does muddy the narrative in a way. It does muddy the narrative because people are not always like doing a timeline of all your little four paragraph stories, you know, about like, this one was written this day, this one was written the next day. Readers don't have time for that. They're just, and maybe, and one with these Google algorithms will just pop up, even if it's not the most recent information. So that is something we need to be, I think we 
media needs to be aware of when it's writing stories that this will live forever. And that's important when it comes to naming people. Um, you know, I mean, very important when it comes to naming people. And I think why I think it's wise that a lot of um, journalistic outlets have moved away from publishing mug, mug shot, mug shots or, yeah. or you know, portraits and things like that, because these things live forever. And so we need to be Con- conscious of that I-, I think every place i've worked has sort of had a general policy of not naming someone until they're charged with a crime because that is like you know something that's on their record at least or it's like a formal thing but that sometimes there's variations from that policy that again in the age of the internet that can be really affect people's future in this and also again it can you know someone can link again someone who is not a journalist or not really a journalist can link to your story from four months ago that you have maybe written 16 updates to in, in different forms later. And, but that's still on the internet for people to say, look, it's a legitimate source saying blah, 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 blah is what happened. So I think that needs to affect how we write reporting. I think that it needs to affect maybe how we, liter- we it's possible we, we need to go back and update all those stories and say, we have received more, at the very top, we have received more information saying blah, 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 blah on all of these stories, right? So that the, to help get, stem the flow of misinformation ideally though i mean yeah i think that it's possible we need to be more than possible we need to be more judicious about putting the information out in the beginning and just admitting all the things we cannot independently verify for sure for sure going back to the list and i i'm thankful that i know what a brady violation is and brady versus Mm -hmm. maryland from like true crime podcast so like rabia chaudhry thank you Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) what were and 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 honestly the gravity of this i think can be like missed by some folks so i just want to lay this out yeah there are nearly 200 officers in washington state who like prosecutors are like they're problematic and they're so problematic i'm gonna tell the defense witness sorry the Mm -hmm. defense attorney so like i don't get caught later on like that i barely trust this dude what are some of the violations that officers committed that got them put on this list so, I mean, this, the, there, there is, a, I will say there is a range. Um, there are some people who are on there for stuff that's more vi- minor, like lying about to a prosecutor about why they couldn't come to court, like, and why they missed a court appearance. They said they were sick, but then they were not sick. You know, there's some things like that, but prosecutors are like, why are you lying to you about that? Why are you, li- are you lying about something else? We need to tell defense attorneys that they, we, because we literally have witnessed you lying in at least one or two instances, right? So stuff like that, which might be, you know, fall on the more minor side but then there's times where people have literally um used excessive force and that will get you on the list but not everyone who uses excessive force or is deemed to is on the list to be clear Mm -hmm. but it can get you on the list and there are people who are on there for because they used force in a way that made um that, that could call their judgment into question i mean prosecutors it's interesting because they are part of the law enforcement team like let's let's also be real about prosecutors right um, I think there's a, prosecutors with a lot of integrity, et cetera, but they are part of the law enforcement team, um, basically. So that means they tend to view police actions, I think, more favorably than other others might. Um, so not everyone's on this list that should be potentially. That is that, that I think is is pretty true. There's there's, there's even p- people that have been reported on for like domestic violence offenses that are known. The Inlander in Spokane had a story recently about an officer who is known to have been accused many, many times of domestic violence offenses and been investigated for such and was not on my list, for instance, you know, and these, okay, anyway. So committing a crime theoretically gets you on the list, except when it doesn't, you know, except when it doesn't. And so you have the most, 
What you really want to know is that most of them are on there for lying. The majority uh, are on there for lying. And that's a big deal in police, even when it's a small thing, because we don't know (laughs) if they do it regularly. We don't know if they are doing it in an instant, if they're doing it to, um, you know, pocket a little extra expense money here. Are they doing, would they do it to make themselves look better if they were accused of abusing force? Would they do it? You know, it's kind of this example of they got caught lying in this instance. So does that impeach their credibility more broadly is sort of the question. And that's something that the prosecution is, is obligated to tell defense attorneys so they can raise that question. Is this person reliable at all when they're saying my client did X, Y, Z? So lying is a big one. Use of force. Bias. Bias will get you on there. That said, I think that we there's plenty of instances I've read about in the news that theoretically a prosecutor could say this is a, an instance of bias we should report to defense. And those guys aren't on the list. So mm-hmm. it's so I think this is an undercount is, I guess, what I want to tell you. I, I think that 200 officers being on this list across our state for bias, use of force and lying and then sometimes there are more offenses, more like they just filed reports that are just like inaccurate and don't match their Coban, their dash cam video footage. But maybe it wasn't exactly a lie. Maybe their perception was just genuinely that far off. Still a problem, right? If you're going to build a case based on their testimony. So those are the ranges of things that get you on there. That said, example being, to be honest, I feel like I should have gone back and done this, but the Benson County Sheriff is on the list now, and he's not in my count because he was added long after I got the records. OK, so in some cases, I went back to King County, Pierce County and said, give me your updated list. I wasn't able to do that in every single county. So I know it's an undercount and there's at least 184, not 183, just that I like know of right now that are on the list. Right. Um, and the prosecutors don't put everyone on there. Defense attorneys say there's tons of officers that they think should be on the list that aren't. So that's good background. If that makes you feel better. That last part, that last part. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm going to cry. So the prosecutors who we've established are the allies of police have a list of nearly 200 and defense attorneys say there should be a lot more on the list. Like, I I know you're not a policymaker, but like, Mm -hmm. how do we have a situation in which the constabulary like, th- th- how, how do we have a situation in which you're allowed to maintain a member of law enforcement? Like, when you've been proven to lie in the function of your job, like, how is this a real thing? So, I mean, there, well, okay, I don't fully know, because, but here's, here's, here's one thing I will say. There are a lot of police officers who do get fired for dishonesty. I mean, a lot. Here's how I know this, because the actual lists, the actual list of all the cops is more like 825 officers across the state. However, many of them are no longer working in Washington state. That's what actually took me a long time to figure out in my investigation, because I thought it was um, there are people on the list that are no longer working and that the prosecutors keep these lists. They don't always discriminate. In fact, most of the time they don't they don't um, acknowledge whether this person still has a job or not. So in some cases, they were terminated for dishonesty. Did they move to Illinois and get a job? I have no idea. So that's what you have a, you know, you have a sort of way I can't really determine that easily if they moved out of state to work in policing. But so, yeah, so some of them are not working in policing in Washington state. But so these 200 that are, some of them, the applying seems kind of egregious and other ones maybe less egregious. But here's what I learned from reporting on police. 
police think it's very, very, very serious if their colleague lies to them about anything, like anything. Mm-hmm. Like some of these cases, I mean, I'm not trying to um, diminish the importance of police lying, but a lot, of, some of the ones they are on the list for are them that their their colleagues caught them in a lie, right? So these are ones, again, they're caught by another police officer lying. And that really pisses other police officers off because, I mean, whether or not they lie, whether or not there's instances where they might lie to the outside world, they seem to have an understanding that they should not lie to each other. <laughs> they think, seem to think that is very bad. So um, there is... That's so depressing. I'm sorry. I mean, that okay. so depressing. And again, I'm, I think that... I, I don't have a list of all statements made to made by police to the public ever. And I would say that not all of them are lies, obviously. And maybe a minority of them are lies. But if there's any lies in there, that is a problem. So here's where, we at, where we're at. So in any case... There's stuff that didn't seem like as big of a deal to me. But when I talk to other people in law enforcement, they're like, oh, no, that that guy, I don't want to work with that guy. That guy, you know, sh- should not be a cop anymore. And one example, um, it seemed minor to me. Right. I mean, more minor. Not that any of this is not serious. There's a guy in Yakima. I'm still waiting on his personnel record. That's why he's not in my story yet. Um, but um, he lied. What I have for him records wise is he lied about a seizure of like some stuff from a horse trailer okay we're not talking about death we're not talking about someone being killed we're not talking about some it's like they had an order to go seize some property and i guess he talked to someone and let them take one thing out of the trailer that was being seized before it happened it was like horse tack or something i don't know anything about horses do you know what that is it's like i don't know it's like some bridle absolutely not i have no no idea idea. and so I, i know some people are gonna make fun of me of this but i think that's what it was some sort of tack or something some sort of horse Face equipment. <laughs> anyway, um, he let someone take that out of there. But then he told others that maybe that he either didn't do that or he was he was like somehow, you know, obscuring what that he did that. That was like deemed like he was uh, his chief was his assistant chief or was like, you terminated him over this. He terminated him over this. He then got reinstated um, through a settlement agreement. But that's a whole other story. But um this was something where this, this, you know, one of his superior officers had such strong words for him about how integrity is so important in policing. You were dishonest with a dispatcher and your coworkers, and that is unacceptable. And again, we're talking about horse equipment, like a small piece of horse equipment. So for me, I read that and I'm like, well, these, like, I mean, can see these admonition from, you know, an office, uh, you know, a superior officer saying this is the most horrible thing and it's very, very bad. But like, you know, anyway, what I'm saying is that they consider lying in the course of your duties to be very serious. So if that's a fireable offense, then, yeah, there's other stuff on my list that you're like, well, wait, why didn't that guy over there get fired? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, the the one that jumps out, um, too, is these instances of bias. Like for me, it's it, the problem with reporting is you think about things too hard. OK, I've been saying <laughs> as like it sounds like a bad thing to say. But for instance, one of the guys I did use in my story. He had a post on Facebook that made my jaw drop when I read it because it was so racist against Native Americans. And I quoted, I used this in my story. He said, because he was objecting to backlash over Victoria's Secret using appropriative Native American clothing and headdresses in a fashion show. Um, there was some I'm, sort of I'm article. bracing myself already for this. Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Well, it's in the story. So yeah, but I mean, but in any case, there was a backlash over that. And so he commented on some sort of, story about the backlash god i can't even say that all right i apologize for this person okay this officer in whatcom county said time to get out 
the smallpox blankets and shut some people up in response to Native Americans raising concerns about their culture being appropriated, right? And I was like, that's bad. That is terrible. And I was like, ah. So when I heard that, I was like, when I read it, it was like a jaw-dropping moment for me. But then, you know, I started talking to people and it's like, oh, God, the guy was like 25. Maybe he doesn't understand the full history of genocide in, in America, like that sort of thing. So you start overthinking things. And then you talk to people and you're like, oh, no, no, no. The, the guy the guy who runs, you know, the, the independent police accountability office in Seattle says that would be a fireable offense in Seattle. That said, plenty of complaints about Seattle police, you know, not living up to expectations. So, you know, take that with whatever grain of salt you might. But, you know, it, I'm not trying to say that I think genocide is okay. Well, I really worry that came out wrong. My point is... Um, a Facebook Wait, post. Disclaimer, disclaimer. Neither Melissa or Nathan or Doug, who is producing, think genocide is okay. So, we so, are all anti-genocide. The problem is you, 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 you do try and get people's responses to these stories. I, I had a, a letter from a prosecutor saying this man has never shown any bias on the job. You know, we trust him. We trust him fully. A prosecutor wrote that letter, even while disclosing this to the defense. And you're like, should I? I mean... It's a Facebook post. It's terrible. It's offensive. It's awful. Is that a fireable offense? Should it be? And so it takes a little bit of exploring here where it's like, well, this guy over here is beating people up and not getting fired. This guy's posting on Facebook racist stuff. Like, I don't know, man. Like, it's a hard, hard thing to um, be the to be the person who decides as a journalist, you know. <sighs> wow. Where am I going with this? I guess my point is, it's like if. There are there's a wide range of offenses and people stay on the job for them and you try and understand why and sometimes it's not clear. <laughs> that is my that is my story. What was the response and the fallout from the story? So like I know in my hyper aware circle, like it was read and shared and we're all like, this is insane. Did the departments have any responses? Did local elected say anything? Like what's been the fallout from the story? <sighs> gotten a response from the people I thought I would, which is the individual police agencies who were featured in my story, the Yakima Police Department. I did talk to their chief before. I mean, I, I talked to the chief, their chief of the story. There was no surprises. No one was like, I can't believe I'm named in the story. I reached out to them six, seven times, everyone who was named as an officer. I've heard nothing from those folks, the people who are named, the, the departments who were named. I've heard nothing. I have, um, I've heard from others um, that are... I heard, for instance, from the um, Pierce County Council Chair Derek Young wrote to me and thought and said that he was he was um, kind of floored by what he read. And so some elected officials have responded um, and said something, but I haven't seen a lot of um, I don't know that there's any policy action that has resulted from it yet. I'm still working on some other follow up stories. For instance, like what I said about prosecutors, I am looking at. Well, are there instances where prosecutors didn't actually do their jobs in telling people, defense attorneys, about officers they knew have had truthfulness issues? I'm looking at that sort of stuff. I would, I don't know what the response has been. I, I, I've heard readers say that they are very grateful just for the reporting on how officers are not always um, truthful, that they're not always, um, they're not always... <laughs> Well, we already know that they're not all, they're not unbiased all, in all cases. Uh, um, but I don't know what will result of it yet, I guess is what, what I'll say. And I think some of that is dependent on following up on my end with, well, are there ways in which this system could be different? 
I will say that I cannot take credit for this, but the legislature did pass some changes that are somewhat mild, but, you know, may, may lead to something about sort of how law enforcement agencies tell prosecutors about their officers who have been disciplined for lying and, and bias and excessive force. Prosecutors kind of say they don't always get the notifications from the police agencies, and that's part of their problem in sometimes having people on these lists that might, maybe should. The legislature passed a, a, a law that says within 10 days of any discovery of some misconduct that would merit putting someone on this list, the law enforcement agencies have to send that information to prosecutors. I guess there's been kind of a loophole in which sometimes maybe they're like, yeah, we'll send it in two years, in three years, or in six <laughs> months, or four months. Two years might be an exaggeration, but there hasn't really been a standard for actually getting that information over. But we still kind of come down to... Some of that is dependent on disciplinary decisions by law enforcement. So I, I, the, the, some of the feedback I've gotten is, is um, critical, I would say, um, from some readers saying, saying people can get put on this list for any reason. It's totally arbitrary. And so this is really unfair, your job reporting here. It, most of the time, because prosecutors' offices are busy, they do not actually go and investigate officers themselves. They rely on the police agencies. So the vast majority of officers on this list have been found by their departments to have committed some sort of violation that would, you know, be, be something that needs to be disclosed to defense attorneys or that they think maybe needs to be. I mean, that's a sustained finding of some sort of discipline in, in most cases. In other cases, for instance, that racist Facebook post, it was, uh, it came, actually that came from a, de a defense attorney. I have since learned that a defense attorney brought that up, that it was not the police agency. So, but anyway, so by, I guess my point is there's, there's ways in which this can break down. And I think that reporting on that is probably more likely to lead to sort of substantive change than just reporting on the existence of officers who maybe don't meet the community's standards. Well, the, the elephant in the room is, is that, the existence of the list is a CYA from prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And so it's why would the prosecutor put a officer on the list if they didn't have valid concerns? And so, yeah, the, 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 you can be on there for random reasons thing is, is, is whack and, oh. and honestly distraction. So, so what I, I am going to, when I'm looking at prosecutors and their decision-making process in this, there is, there are, I will say this is very, 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 very rare. So I have heard of a case in which it was alleged that Mark Lindquist put someone on this list because they were critical of stuff <laughs> that in his administration. And so there have been these instances of, you know, maybe prosecutors have done this to be retaliatory, but they are very, very, very rare. And in that case, that particular person uh, is now no longer on Pierce County's list. So they've been removed and that's been corrected. So. I, I just think that that is a little bit of a red herring in the sense that um, sure. it doesn't happen very often. And the, the instances in which I'm totally aware of it happening have been mostly corrected. That said, actually, because we're in Pierce County, I didn't get into the weeds on this in my story, but there's a whole side thing I reported on for several weeks regarding the people in Pierce County's special investigations unit who are cops that the prosecutor's office has put on its Brady list and the cops say that they should not be on that list. So there is a dispute about this right now in your county in which um, 
so there, there, so you know, I mean, there are d- disagreements uh, from, between officers and prosecutors' office about who goes on the list. In most cases, I found though, for instance, again, I go back to that Whatcom County deputy who had a racist Facebook post. The prosecutor said, "We're going to keep putting him on the stand. We trust him." Um, so, uh, but being on the list doesn't even, uh, in some cases, I think, neg- negatively affect uh, all officers' careers in the way they 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 worry it will. Um, you know, even some people I've said, I've asked who, so you're, you've been trying, you, I saw you tried to get off this list. Um, but at the same time, you told me it hasn't affected your actual day-to-day duties, your ability to testify in court, really, it hasn't actually affected that. So why, you know, what's, so, so why are you fighting so hard to get off of it? And they just said, it's about my reputation, right? So it's about my reputation. And that was an officer in East Wenatchee who I talked to, who has been on the list, um, for some time. Uh, but he said, it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't actually affect his ability to do his job that he is on the list. So let me back to this. I, I do think there's variation between counties as a caveat to that. But for the most part, people, again, are on this list because their own departments said there was something that came up that they had an issue with, either a sustained disciplinary finding or the, the chief was just like, ah, uh, you probably should know about this because we don't want to get t- cases overturned if it's not disclosed to the defense. Because that's what can happen, is that theoretically, if this stuff is not disclosed, the defense can say we didn't have a fair trial. This needs to be overturned. Folks, if you have not read this story, it's on Crosscut. Again, nearly 200 cops with credibility issues still working in Washington state. Melissa, thank you so much for making time this morning and thank you so much for the work that you do. You. If people want to follow you on the socials and find your writing at Crosscut, besides going to crosscut.com, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, what can they do? Where should they look? Um, I'm on Twitter quite a bit and my Twitter handle is at Melissa Santos One. I am not the Lucha Libre announcer lady who is very <laughs> lovely, but is not me. Once in a while, we get mixed up. That's not me. The one is extremely important. <laughs> and then I am uh, on crosscut.com. Um, my author page is uh, my name. It's at the end of it, which is really, I should have that handy. Um, but you can go and look for, if you Google my name, you can find all of my stories on Crosscut. And it's crosscut.com slash author slash Melissa dash Santos. Again, thank you for coming on the show. Like your work is indispensable in the region. And I just really appreciate the reporting you do. Keep making people who need to feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. your work is essential. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, kind of forever, y'all. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated if you can, where you can. And prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hold on, Doug. I'm going to need to edit here because it's a question. All my answers are crappy, too. Can you edit all of them? Can you just make me sound better? Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.